Oh boy. Oh boy, is it hot? It's hot. Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. It's about 50 million degrees. It's too hot. Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. It's London. It's a heat wave. There. There's no other city. There are other cities that get hot. There are other cities that get hot. I've been in Bangkok. Been in Bangkok, and that that's a sweaty city. But for some reason, when it's in your own hometown, it's different. It just feels stifling and freaky. It's like an alien ship has landed. Anyway, how have you been? I'm good. Just had a really good chat with the uh, singer Chantel from Diamond Thug. Really good. Check their music out. I'll be um, talking... I've spoken... With her, obviously, uh, it's hot. Forgive me, but I'll be dropping that episode very soon. So we had a really great chat, and I'm, I'm confident you're going to enjoy it. I mean, their music's freaking brilliant. Um, Diamond Thug, do check them out. But yeah, this this episode is uh, Guy Pratt time. Guys, oh yay, what a story! Read his book. His autobiography is sick. It's, I mean, it's just like a page turner of epic proportions that's how i would probably describe it it's one anecdote after another there's a lot of alcohol involved uh he's open about that there are no, it's no whole barred no holes barred it's not very apologetic about the um hedonism it's fine it's not that kind of book there's not nothing very deep about it it's just fun it's a fucking fun book it's it's hilarious you're gonna laugh your tits off i mean he also toured um this book and Edinburgh Festival and what have you. He's like, he knows what he's doing. He's a funny guy. This is a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Most notably, I think, because we actually did actually end up getting quite deep. We got deep about his connection with John LeMessurier. So John LeMessurier played Sergeant Wilson in Dad's Army. Yeah, man, who do you think you're kidding, Mr. fucking Hitler? Um, don't know why I did that. But essentially, it's great. It's a great little story in there about um, John LeMessure, Hattie Jakes, and and that whole uh, setup. It's very weird, but it's very funny, and it's and it's cool, and it's there's loads of little anecdotes within that as well. Anecdotal episode for you, people. So obviously we talked about a little. Uh, I don't think I think we touched on Pink Floyd as well because this guy's like toured with everyone. He's the most unreal. Uh, session musician I've ever spoken to including Steve Ferroni so you obviously remember I spoke with Steve Ferroni the drummer from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers but also he um, Steve Ferroni's obviously like sessioned with everyone like Shaka Khan or all that average white band and, and, and loads and loads of others but um, he's never written about it Guy has so go go buy his book or what have you and enjoy it and um yeah, I'm, I'll make it quick because it's stinking hot. But if you do have any time to check out the website, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk, that would be wonderful. You can check out my short film on there, The Name, 
And you can also read the Limehouse podcast blog, which is up there, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. But yeah, I, I, I hope you have been well. I hope you've been riding the wave of this crazy weather. You know, someone's probably died in a reservoir some somewhere in this fucking country. Someone always dies in a reservoir and a heat wave. Don't know why. I mean, I, I would just opt for running my head under a cold tap as opposed to jumping into a pretty high-risk situation just for the sake of cooling down. But there we go. Mad dogs and Englishmen. I got another golden duck in cricket. Well, it wasn't a golden duck. It was a duck. That was disappointing. I'm, I'm now captaining the Sevens team at Streatham and Marlborough in, uh, in, in Dulwich, essentially. And... Um, Started, I fell in love with cricket again, you know. I think you got that when I was talking to Jonathan Agnew not so long ago, just at the um, kind of middle of lockdown. So Jonathan Agnew's like, you know, BBC cricket correspondent. He's been presenting TMS for about 300 years and he's a lovely guy. Um, and I thought, sod it, I'm just going to go for it. Cricket, but oh my God, I got a zero. I got bowled by a possible 10-year-old girl Uh uh, and that's fine. That's, you know, that's who I am. What I was so nervous, though, facing her, because why was I nervous? She was, ba- it was barely even three miles an hour, and I was crapping myself. What's that all about? Do you ever get that? You're ner- why am I nervous here? This is ridiculous. This is a friendly. In, it's, in, in life, why do we wind ourselves up to such epic proportions about shit that does not matter? absolutely insane but anyway yeah so I got a zero and then I got like a one the week before and a two so I'm working backwards you can't get minus one in cricket god (laughs) maybe I should they should invent it for me anyway look after yourself really enjoy this you will really enjoy this chat with Guy Guy Pratt is a superstar plus he practiced down my old working men's club Chiddingfold working men's club Oh yeah. Look after yourself. Stay safe. It's good to hear your voice because I've been listening to your audiobook for the past week or so. And oh, yeah. um, how much fun did you have doing that audiobook? I didn't really enjoy it. Uh, I actually got uh, I had to get quite. Are you recording? We, is, are we doing it? Is this us? We on? But, um, we're on. We're on. I uh, yeah, I didn't really enjoy it at all. I, and uh, it was, I got quite soft conscious. Also, I had a very bad cold. Uh, and so it was quite funny when I heard it. I thought it was actually. Well, I should just say it's as read by Melvin Bragg. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man! That guy's and so I basically drank my way through the day. So uh, it took me two days to do. So. <laughs> Approaching halfway and approaching the end, I'm really quite pissed. No fucking way. That's, that's fucking brilliant. Oh my God, that is... I've always, Sorry, that's so funny. Yeah, I used to... Uh, it was like when I used to have a radio show on Planet Rock and I used to do it all my... I'd sit on my own. So I used to sit and... I know, it was dreadful. And I, So I used to just sit and get quietly pissed doing that. It was late um, on a Sunday night. Mate, that sounds absolutely brilliant. 
shouting about Whitesnake. It's funny because I, I was talking to Bert, um, Bernie Marsden. I, and... I saw that. I've been looking at your list. I'm at your fabulously eclectic list of uh, previous guests, quite a few of whom I know, having counted in one way or another. Um, yes, what was Bernie saying? He was just talking. We, would, we ended up talking about Tommy Vance and we started talking about my... I didn't. I didn't do Radio Caroline, obviously, because I'm 38. But I had a very similar experience listening to Virgin Radio in boarding school, like duvet over my head, listening to it on like uh, AM because you couldn't get it on FM uh, down yeah. where I where I was boarding, and uh, yeah, I, and I, so I was to... John, I was John Peel. In my day, it was the fucking it was the little earpieces like you said on planes, where it was just air on um, <laughs> duvet with John Peel. Yeah, that is it's so cool. I love that. I absolutely love that. So you did you did experience that then the whole uh, Radio Caroline thing, or, or you oh, yeah, too I did. young? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, we're well, not really, no, not Radio Caroline. That's before my time. No, I was. Um, it was John Peel and, uh, of course, Luxembourg, Fab Two Hundred Eight, which I loved. But I never uh, only found out recently the reason that um, Radio Luxembourg was only on at night was because that's when atmospheric conditions allowed the radio waves to travel all that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, I think that's depicted in that movie, The Boat That Rocks. I could be wrong. I could not watch that. I, I, I just could not fucking believe it. I mean, there is Radio Cam. There's so obviously such a great film to be made with that. And there's so obviously people who can mind director. And it's so obviously not Richard Curtis. Yeah, yeah, it's not. <laughs> It's not a great movie. It's pretty poor. And I couldn't even bear it. I couldn't. It's like, really? Him? For that? (laughs) I've got an alternative. By the way, I came up with an alternative idea for that film yesterday. You did, huh? Yeah, I did, which is a guy wakes up in a world where no one remembers Richard Curtis films. Oh man, what what kind of a film is that guy? That's a terrible. That's a terrible world. Brilliant How... film. It's a fabulous world. I tell you that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, you know what though? I do have such a little massive soft spot for um, four weddings and Notting Hill. I do. Well, I don't give a well, shit. Well, Notting Hill, I don't because I live there. And he okay, and yeah, killed obviously. the fucking area. It literally killed the area. He was selling his house while he wrote it, you know. And it's, it's very funny because literally within a year, that film coming out, the place was just yeah. overrun by Americans. And what's it, I mean, like, well, what, that's not Notting Hill. And I mean, there's there's no carnival. Notting Hill is the second biggest <laughs> carnival in the world. No carnival. No one dealt weed. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, not there, there was a really that film should have been called Holland Park. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely. But there, there's, like, I can definitely see that there, there could be room for an alternative, Hugh Grant like drug dealing, skag skag whore yeah. kind of like Julia Roberts kind of kind of <laughs> spin off movie. I'm, I mean, I love for, I love for weddings, but that's because I remember I was, I was actually in the middle of a Pink Floyd tour and um, uh, and any English film is just is amazing. When you're on tour in America, you've been in America. Yeah. You're anything. I'm a, I, you know, I sobbed at Shirley Valentine, I think, because I saw it in Texas. Um, so, but then I saw it again, and it's just, it's just all so privileged. And I just hate this. I hate this. That's the, you know, like apart from Downton Abbey, that's 
the England that is sold to the world. And I, and that's yeah. what they, I hate it. So yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I completely agree. It's the only, it's kind of like the only, um, I don't know what do you call it, um, sellable, what the fucking word, never mind. But it, it basically it's the only way that Mer- Americans can possibly buy our shtick is by us all sounding like me uh, and having thousands upon thousands of pounds guzzling out of my arsehole. And I was, we, I was just watching, a, what the hell was that film, another um, Hugh Grant film the other day. And it was making out that one of these people, like these family, this family were poor. And it was just, they were, they were living in a fucking penthouse. It was insane. <laughs> it's like, what? This is, really is just packaging it for the Americans. But anyway, yeah. anyway, let's talk about Guy Pratt, the, the legend that well, is. I, well, um, I just want to carry on. There's one thing. Because oh, Hugh Grant, who, let's say, who, <laughs> who, um, who has had an amazing second act. I mean, it's everything he's done in the last 10 years has been fantastic. He's... he's yeah. Suddenly found his, I, I love this guy. I, you know, the floppy haired Sloan, I could do without. But this guy, I, the, my phone, I mean, the, you know, a very English scandal. And then, the, and that, and Winnie and uh, Paddington, which was off the chart. So, yeah. a very, very fun point that if if you just listen, if, if you just listen to some of the dialogue scenes in Paddington, no, some of the dialogue scenes in a very English scandal, it's like a very dark Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> Same two people. <laughs> <laughs> that, is so, that is so spot on, isn't it? Oh, my God. It was so brilliant what he did in that. His work in that was absolutely amazing. Yeah, oh, my God. So, Guy, um, when, I, when I came to your book, I was, um, I was informed about you by a friend of mine called Kev, who I used to work with. Um, he and I actually are, are, are kind of big... Well, he was a very big, proggy, rocky kind of guy, but also very, very eclectic. But he's re- he's read your work, and he was like, "You got to, you got to try and hunt him down and try and get him on your show because he's got the most incredible autobiography." Um, I mean, when I said to you, "Can you think of one moment to bring to the show?" Because like I like to get someone to talk okay. about a moment of their life, and and you said to me, "Pick one, mate," because there are about a thousand. Um, for me, I don't know whether, because um, your book doesn't really sort of delve too deeply into like you know your upbringing, your childhood as such, like in a in a kind no, of you know. Because and although I do actually, I, I kind of address that a bit in um, in the intro. In the, I I can't really remember, um, and that's not. I don't think there's. I don't think I've got any. You know, I asked my mum, did anything dreadful happen? Is there, am I blocking anything out? And, and I think I was just genuinely really quite happy. Um, and, yeah. and I because the funny thing is because my missus Georgie Georgie Bing who's a very successful children's author she wrote the Molly Mimbles and she is utterly in touch with her childhood do you remember every minute of it and it's like her when where my reference to whenever oh this reminds me of the time you know I fell down the stairs at the Four Seasons <laughs> Monte Carlo her <laughs> thing will be well when I was six I you know she remembers every single moment and I. And whenever I read people's autobiographies and they have all that stuff about, you know, bucolic summers on uncle's farms in Ireland. And I, 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 said, I just don't remember. I just, just don't really remember. So I, maybe there was something horrific. Maybe, maybe I was traded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, Philomena style. Public figures, you know, for sex. I don't know. I mean, and I, you know, I just wiped the whole thing out. I mean, guy, that would make for a very interesting book. That's going to make for uh, num- number one for m- many, many years. He's he's um, 
it's just it's just left the screen for a second to turn the light on but i think it's to write down an idea for a second book um, um, i've actually I've, I've, i'm actually writing a second book um oh you are brilliant well because i just realized i'm not i'm stuck i'm stuck here i am you know um i'm literally the last people on earth to go back to work everyone yeah. back at work for us yeah you cannot I know. socially distance music None of who wants to go to that. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to play to something that looks like either the White House press conference or a fucking Tuesday night at the Edinburgh Festival. Do you know? I know. I know. And like I've spoken to so many musicians that are in the, exactly the same thing. They're, they're just sort of being pragmatic and trying to be as upbeat as they possibly can about it. But at the end of the day, it's absolutely, it's murderous, isn't it? It's murderous. It's horrific. Yeah, yeah. And we yeah. just cancelling and rescheduling. I'm just and hoping for the best. You know. So. Um, yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that for people like us, who, who I mean, you know, when I work, I do very well. When I don't work, I I don't do anything. And so I've got to sit at home this year, making absolutely no money, having had a great year last year. And somehow yeah. next January, I've got to pay the tax. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, and I'm hoping I'm hoping that there's going to be enough people in this situation that something happens because I really don't know what I'm going to do. So, Mate, I. I do generally from the heart from my heart I'm not just saying this but I really do hope that you know you and uh, similar people get you know something is figured out here and it's not just government handouts because let's face it fucking hell is everyone going to get and, and, and how's it going to work and all that kind of stuff and it's to, um, well, you just want to be empowered uh, there's a, a terrible thing with the um, yeah but, but like for instance with the, the whole when they finally did come up with the bailout for the art sector and comedy doesn't count comedy doesn't count as art so all those comedy clubs and everything don't get anything yeah i know look i mean Mental. just anyway just, but let's, let's, not have a, let's not have a covid wine that's not gonna nah, no one right. no wants to listen to that yeah um okay i'm also going to say maybe just kill your video as well because i reckon that's going to give us a little bit more bandwidth um because oh, okay. it was a bit static going a bit static quite a bit but what's really that. weird, it, it, that's that's just a lovely picture. Um, it goes through really static, but it does it, it kind of catches up in a really weird, freaky way. But yeah, um, yeah. I, because like, what 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 makes me laugh about parts of your autobiography that you obviously go, it kind of becomes a running joke because you say you can't remember gigs, like you cannot remember anything about gigs. No, it's have, funny. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can, but I can't. But it's yeah, it is funny. They don't sit with me, and, and I think that's because um, I, I because I it's the one thing I take seriously. But then I'm yeah. like, then I don't even know. But do I? I mean, it's um, I can remember uh, uh, the sources gigs are sourceful gigs. I remember very well, and I don't because that's um, that's such a fun thing. I mean, that's the other thing that's so annoying about not being able to tour with this band. It's you know. Uh, for the first time, I'm fi- I'm fronting a band, I'm co-fronting a band, which is something I've yeah. never done with Gary. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I can talk a bit about that. Um, uh, what can I say? Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, obviously now I've gone completely, I've stiffed completely. I don't know, um, I don't know. <laughs> well, it doesn't really, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, like, you know... Yeah, well, I suppose the thing about not really remembering gigs, I, I don't know what that is because it, it, it's more like because you want a gig to go a certain way. So so 
it's almost like if I'm remembering something, it's because something went wrong or something didn't happen in the way it was meant to. And because yeah. and, and that's why there's also that's the reason that there's all sorts of mistakes and things you want to change that never get changed on tour. Like it'll be like every night I'll come to a point and like and there'll be something that I do that I don't like or something that someone else does that I don't like. I think, oh yes, I must remember to tell Gary not to do that or whatever right yeah and then of course you forget you completely forget and so it goes on for a year and then a live album comes out and then it's still on it you realize because you just <laughs> forgot every single night but i mean yeah. i remember there was a classic once when um i mean david used to do that david gilmore used to do that to me i remember you know after a 13 month tour i remember watching i think it was delicate sound of thunder and we were watching a rough cut of it and david said to me oh yeah i never liked it when you did that what didn't you say? <laughs> and, I, and I now understand because probably because every night, well, oh yeah, I don't like that. I must tell guy. And then by the end of the show, you've forgotten. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's almost like you you need to kind of. It's almost like you should make notes during the show because I do it all the like, time. There'll be some effect setting I want to change every time. Night, I go, I must change that. And it comes to that bit again. Oh yeah, fuck, I was going to change that. Then the next yeah. time, oh, I was going to change that. There are people that do that. There are musicians that make notes during gigs, and it's appalling. And I, and I, I think those people should shouldn't just, they should think about their lives a little more seriously. Oh yeah, have oh. you seen have you seen someone actively <laughs> in the act of making notes? Oh Van yeah, Morrison yeah. Like, used to, Van Morrison used to write notes to hold up to the. Uh, apparently, he had like big cards, and he used to hold up notes for the monitor guy more drums and less drums <laughs> oh my that is random but that's totally van morrison isn't it my god um so i want i want to because people that won't have um read your book um yeah. fool fools that they are um what in your childhood differentiated you you're, you're the first bass player i've spoken to in this show what what drove you yeah, towards that tells the, you, the, that, the that, right right away that tells you a lot doesn't it yeah. Like, well, I've spoken to literally everyone in the world. I guess I should speak to a bass player. <laughs> now you've got. Sorry. What are you... Sorry, I had to run off and grab my phone. It was ringing. Sorry. Oh, sorry. It's the wife. It's the wife. Um, no, sorry. Um, oh, look, about you've, got you've got a baby on the way. Yeah, well, yeah, we've got a Bambino on the way, and uh, oh, it's all a bit mental. Life's all a bit mental. But yeah, no, no, what what, what um, drew you towards the bass? Nothing. Absolutely nothing drove me towards the bass. I was had absolutely no interest in the bass other than the fact that it was an electric instrument, rock and roll band. Uh, the story is, um, uh, which is the book, which is that when I fell in love with rock and roll, in general, the Who in particular, I had my absolute kind of road to Damascus moment after the first time I'd smoked a cigarette and um, and nearly passed out. Went later and heard and heard Barbara O'Reilly for the first time, and that was literally it. Everything I knew and cared about went out the window. And so I wanted an electric guitar, you know, like everyone else. And my mum was like, "Oh, darling, why don't you get a nice Spanish guitar?" And I was like, "Spanish? Fuck that!" It was, it was the electric bit. Uh, was, in fact, my joke was always, to be, you know, a toaster would have been nearer what I was after than a Spanish guitar. So <laughs> I, <laughs> it was just had to be electric. That's all I cared about. I didn't care what it was as long as you plugged it in. So um, so I thought, well, I'd ask for a bass guitar because I didn't, I didn't really know what they were. And I thought, well, they're not going to get me a double bass. 
And it just so I wasn't, I, I guess I, I, I just don't think I'd even really thought about learning an instrument or playing it. It was just, I wanted to have an, an electric guitar. So yeah. I got, to, you know, and, um, but the, the beauty of that was, because uh, I, I was boarding as well. Uh, when I got back to school, after, it was a, I got it for Christmas, Christmas and birthday, you know, joint present. Um, when I got back to school, of course, about three or four other kids had got electric guitars. But I sort of, if anyone wanted to be a band, they needed me. So I was suddenly, I was in charge of, of bands, essentially. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, uh, because... The world, everyone's everyone's well, guitar. Well, I'm a guitar, but if, if you've got a bass player, you're a fucking bad. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, when yeah. I befriended one uh, Martin Glover, uh, now known as Youth. There you go. Yeah. I, I so. mean, it's it's so it's, it's so funny because um, not enough credence is given to the rhythm section. Like I'm a drummer, and frankly, we we are a dying breed. I, I mean, maybe people have been saying that for a long time, but I think they are. You, you know, you, you're a good, ba- I you're don't, a good you know, bass listen, player. Back in, in 1982, man, in 1982, when, when the Lindrum came out, right, the Lindrum machine came out, and that was the first drum machine where you could actually use samples. We well, couldn't use samples, but it had real samples. It had real drum sounds in it. And we all assumed that was it. Drums were finished. We assumed that was just yeah. the end of it. Right then. It's like, well, why yeah. would anyone use a drummer again? And uh, so it's, you know, the, the death of drums and everything has always been, it's, I don't think, I think we're past that, where it's, because if you want to just make a record on your laptop, you can. So it's, you know, it, it's, there are, are always going to be drums. Like there I mean, the, when I started playing the bass, you're right, the, ba- the bass was an absolutely maligned sort of uninterested. And I mean, my joke used to be that, you know, the reason most people started playing the ba- became bass players is because the band they wanted to be in didn't have one. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. A, yeah. Most bands had a bands had um had a roadie before they had a bass player. They had a lawyer before they had a bass player. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's it's, but it's then, so mental. Know, but then cue the eighties, and uh, and what's interesting is, is that because it's certainly in most sort of pop music. Um, I mean, because rock was very much. An underground, you know, when there, there was like U2 and the Smiths and Killing Joe and stuff like that. But the, the real, but the rock really wasn't, the, the guitar wasn't really it. I mean, the 80s, mm. the 80s were absolutely the decade of the bass. If you, you know, if you, if you just throw to people, okay, musicians from the 80s, they're going to go, uh, Mark King, uh, Marcus Miller, that, you know, it's bass players who, you know, Bernard Edwards, it's bass players who kind of come to the fore, who jumped out there. And it was quite yeah. funny because because the bass wasn't really the bass. Most of the records I played on, uh, not the pop stuff I did, was I mean my career was basically I was would be the last thing to go on the record. And, sorry, sorry, sorry. Is that yeah, I've got to take this. It's she's no, just no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'll just I'll be it's two awkward, seconds. It's awkward. We can we can carry on later or whatever. It's really That's fine. Right. I'm just I'll, I'll be two seconds. Hello. I'm good. I'm just in the middle of this interview. Is everything okay? Okay. So, blimey, Charlie. Okay. Can can we? Oh my god, that's a great. That's mental. Oh my get god. Get back to me. Get back to me. Get back to me. Oh my. Okay. Bye. Hey, guy. It's octopus. 
we'll probably keep this in the show because I've just found out that um, we're actually 17 weeks pregnant, not the 12 we thought. And, oh, wow. And she's, he or she will be due on, on Christmas Day. <laughs> I was, that's when I was due. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I was, uh, Jesus, guy, Jesus my, Christ. My, my dad always swore that he was going to call me Jesus Christ Pratt. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, frankly, no, Pratt, quite enough of a cross to bear. Thanks. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus Pratt. Well, no, it's fine because Jesus is just the name. It's, it's only the Christ bit that's actually troublesome because uh, Jesus is just the name. <laughs> Jeez, but there's nothing wrong. It's oh, that's so funny. <laughs> oh man, that's that's tickled me. That's tickled me. Um, that's so your child yeah. is due the same day I was. I was due. That's very there funny. you go, but my you friend. You must bear in mind. You must bear yeah. in mind. That in Britain, yeah. we're wrong. We're wrong with that. Your child will be two weeks late. Oh God, yeah, inevitable or two weeks so, early. In yeah. France, they measure it differently, and they turn up when they say. We literally just do it wrong. Okay, how, how do we do this wrong? Uh, I don't know, but it, it's but that's why you're fine. I mean, everyone, every baby I know that tends to be there two to three weeks late. Yeah, I mean, ours was Pearl was early, my, our first daughter, our only daughter, uh, but but she <laughs> so she far. came within about she came within about two and a half hours of the first contraction. She was literally just shot out. She was like, "Get me out of here." It was right. it was insane. It was nuts. We were like basically holding Laura was pretty much holding her head out of her fucking vagina, literally popping out on the way to the hospital. And I was going over speed bumps, uh, oh, a, you know, a pace a pace that wouldn't induce it even more. We is got this to the suitable, fu- is this suitable podcast material. Is- oh, I don't know. <laughs> who cares? Who, who gives your a shit? You know what, guy? <laughs> these days, these days, this kind of stuff this is what people want to hear. You know, they want to hear about dilated vaginas and and oh, babies. I don't. I, I don't. The whole childbirth, <laughs> I'm terrible at. I am okay. absolutely terrible. I was fine when my son was born. I was fine, oh, but right, then right, right. the next day, I'd be walking down the street going, "Oh, oh god." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't. Really, I don't deal with tricky. this stuff very well. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, it is pretty amazing. But anyway, let's talk about you and not yeah. my life. Um, my God, um, we, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So bass players and what have you, and and they're the corner, you know. Yeah. I don't know the the key, the key to a great um, band. Well, no, in what, my I, opinion. What, I was, what I was saying was that, like, uh, for most of the eighties, most you know, most of my jobs were would be me and, and the producer, maybe the artist, just in the control room with an almost finished record. With me basically just putting stuff in between the vocal. I wasn't really yeah. doing bass. It was the bass was very much. It was more like a kind of a horn section, or something really. You know, it was because um, very often there'd be a synth bass, and then I just come in. Uh, what's a good a good, great example would be something like "Icing on the Cake" by Stephen Duffy, which was a mid-sized bit. Um, okay. Which, yeah. And if you listen to it, and the bass is great, but it's not bass. There's a synth doing the bass. I'm just doing all this fun stuff. You know, yeah, don't actually need to be there at all. But I'm doing what you'd get a horn section to do. So, so essentially, like, um, what's that Spinal Tap song where they have four basses in it? Uh, no, not like that, because those are at least <laughs> a big bottom. But it's no, not like that at all, because they're actually all playing bass. I'm, what I'm saying is what I'm doing is something else. Yeah, I'm being silly. Sorry. Um, but yeah, no, it is. It is. That does 
that actually that 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 you're talking about the 80s and bass players especially in your book when you go into it it's it's really fascinating how much of um a solo instrument it's seen as i mean obviously you've got um my generation um yeah the who and what have you which was um, you know incredible so, um, but yeah I've been I've been talking about Bosa because I, I had on my lockdown licks thing, you know, the YouTube videos I've been doing, um, and I did the money. The, I used to do this bass solo in Money with Pink Floyd, which I fucking hate and was always embarrassed about. But of course, when they put out the later years box set and cut it, I was livid um, because it, it's <laughs> because it actually turns out it's beloved by bass players, especially Brazilians, especially the Brazilian jazz community. I mean, uh, so, that's so random. Yeah. That's uh, so random, uh, obrigado, guys. Um, and but and so I gave it when I when I, and I thought, well, I have, okay, I have to do it because so many people asked me to do it. So I did it, and um, it was a it was a bugger having to learn it. But I, I I said a little thing about bass solos, which is that I have a problem with bass solo in that because the thing is the the bass is a fantastic solo instrument. The register is great. You've got that lovely reedy tone. Kind of like, you know, I mean, it, it, the bass should be a beautiful solo instrument the same way as the clarinet or the oboe is. You know, it's got all that. But, um, but bass solos are always, they follow this kind of three act structure, which is this kind of, there's the slow moody, and then it's super chops. And then there will right. be a third bit, whatever. But, I remember, but the main problem with bass solos is uh, the reason they're shit is because the bass has stopped. <laughs> so, right, yeah. you know I mean? so, so you're playing <laughs> over the drums and some noodling, but the fucking the actual groove has the ass has dropped out the song. So of course right. it's going to be shit. So the, if so if if you're going to have, I mean, it's uh, and actually in a Pink Floyd setting, for instance, the obvious thing is you get John Carrion to play the bass while you're doing the solo because John can always cover anything. Um, so. <laughs> But yeah, I realize yeah. that is the problem. It, it's something that bass players should look at. If they want to take solos, then someone else in the band needs to be taking <laughs> the bass juices so that your solo doesn't sound shit because the, because the whole track's falling apart. Yeah, I can see pub bands uh, taking your advice there, Guy. Yeah, uh, we've got two bass players in here. Yeah, and, and what about oh, two drummers? Oh, you know? no, no, it's very simple. Just a lot of guitarists have octave pedals. So can you hear the keyboard player can do it with his left hand, you know, something. Yeah um so like what what i think the, oh, my the thing i turn the video off or is it all right but we're okay at the moment but if it does start going mad i'll just tell you but um if basically if you freeze but the, the thing that keeps reoccurring with me is how many lives you have I, you've had i think you've i think in terms of like getting it i mean go, getting to a gig like just by the skin of your teeth or getting an audition when you're hanging out of your ass yeah. and still getting it. Those kind of lives. I'm not talking about like surviving car crashes and fucking, which you have, obviously I think you have time. Um, <laughs> yes, that as well. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, plane, like, not like plane crash or anything, but like what, what blew my mind was when you, you do that Floyd audition and you were like on a gale force 10 fucking hangover. Yeah. That's uh, insane. Yeah. Still, yeah. I know that is, but, but, and God smiled on me and that when I turned up and yeah, and, and I was, and David said, no, don't bother getting the bass out. I just want you to see if you can sing one like hell, which if I was rested and sober, I probably wouldn't have been able to do very well. I would have been way too self-conscious. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was great. No, I mean, but I do. Also, it's interesting because I've just read two 
the two most depressing books I've ever read, which is uh, both to do with The Who, which is uh, a John Entwistle autobiography, uh, and mm. uh, called The Last Four Years, which is by Keith Moon's ex. And they're both just really, really, I mean, with Keith, you just think, he's just pathetic alcoholic, really. And why anyone would put up with that after a while? And with, that's the, you know, I, mean, I don't drink anymore or anything. Because yes, I mean, I had, did have many lives, and, but frankly, there's only two ways that story ends, which is that you stop or you die. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I, yes, I chose the former. Um, and also that stuff, and it's funny when you're young. It's funny, it doesn't matter. You can be, it's funny. It's once you get older, it's old people doing stuff like that is not funny. And also because then there's all sorts of family and stuff involved and then you're up, mm. you're hurting people. So, so it's, um, you know, I'm not one of those reformed owners, but it, it's, in in the case of like with you know with John Entwistle like his last few years it's just so it's just so pointless and meaningless and you know you're not doing anyone any good yourself and and with Keith if if someone had actually just intervened you know he could have gone on he could have had a great second act he could have been a great you know he, you know um, I saw Michael Palin interviewed uh, a couple of years back it was really brilliant and he's talking about how uh, they had they'd written a part for Keith in Life of Brian. He had a part, and oh, really? uh, but and then he died just a few weeks before they went and filmed it. But he probably would have turned up drunk and fucked it up. So it's, right, that's the I thing. Think... It gets to the point where it's not funny anymore. There's a thing, you know, on on American tours, Pete Townsend ended up not changing his clothes for weeks because he wouldn't bother getting undressed when he got back to the hotel. He'd just go and lie on his bed and wait for the call, telling them they'd been kicked out of the hotel. And you just think, God. oh, fuck's sake. Why would you put up with that? <laughs> oh, God. That's depravity on a different fucking yeah. scale. That's no, this, this, this is not... But also, we think of just here, of uh, the thing I never quite understood, of this thing of smashing everything up. Because he used to do, Keith Moon used to do that at home. Like, what yeah. it's like riot it's it's this, that same senseless thing as rioting i'm gonna smash up where i live like it's <laughs> i get i loved i loved uh, everyone got off on him smashing up his drum kit and 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 that was uh, great and the whole all the destructive art element right, of it and yeah. all that that's fantastic but then you're then it's just it's just you know pastiche but I, I, so sure you think after doing that for like sort of 14 years wouldn't you think oh, maybe i'll try something else I oh man I know but I think I think it's the thing people just draw in they they become caricatures of themselves so and because of the public that's what they want and and that's how they earn yeah. their money and they're scared to change I think also you can't you just can't hold back some people like I don't think when you talk about people intervening with Keith it was Keith Moon it's I can imagine the people around him were just like just let him do what he's got to do yeah. because of that era yeah, no, exactly. But the thing, well, yes, exactly. But I mean, the thing with my stories is the difference there, which does I find quite extraordinary, is that of course I wasn't Keith Moore. I wasn't. I wasn't a member of a band. I was an employed professional. And this is something that never occurred to me at the time: is that as a musician, I've been hired to perform my duties to the best of my abilities at any time. Was that never occurred to me? I just thought I've been asked to join a gang, <laughs> and, well, think... and, and unfortunately, I I never fucked up. I never fucked up the gear. You know, I caused all sorts of mayhem outside of it. 
but I never fucked a gig. I never played. I remember David, apparently, he never said this to me, but he did say to someone once, about nine months into the first tour, he just said, I'd love to sack that fucking guy Pratt. He's just off in the nut all the time. He said, but he's the most consistent musician in the band. One guy never gets a no wrong. So, you know, so it's a curse. It's a curse, I tell you. Oh, sure. I, I can't believe that. I can't believe that you... Oh, and all the time you're reading this book, I'm, I'm reading your book, I'm going, he's going to fuck up. There's going to be, a, I mean, a huge fuck up. He's going to send his life. We're going to, the next chapter is going to be him with Nell and I talking to the fucking wolves, you know, full on. And no, yeah. no. And the next chapter, you know, fucking headlining a 60 billion person people <laughs> gig in fucking Moscow. Do you know what I mean? When when you talk about some of those gigs with Floyd, they're um, uh, absolutely astonishing. You know, these when you go off on tour around the world and what have you. But and then the thing that brings it back back home to me, which always makes it you've got such a it's such a great line of humility in the whole book because it is it is it is grounded in in pretty profound like um not not it's not head there's some of it's hedonistic, yeah, of course, quite a bit of it is, but but there's also, you know, this almost royalty of, what well, is royalty of rock pink floyd for christ's sake but then there's a funny moments when you're telling your mate trying to get your mate to pick out this girl in the crowd who's wearing a baseball cap i, know. <laughs> <laughs> I only ever did that once and i'm ashamed of that i'm very very ashamed of that yeah um, but it's funny as fuck because you're just after so. the baseball cap <laughs> well the funny thing actually was that the dea cap yeah That's, i've still got that it's quite funny <laughs> Funnily enough, because I've got that here. I've, I've actually got a bust of my dad, uh, which was given to me by Lionel Bart, um, which was, turns out, was actually made by the props department at L Street from when dad was in Randall and Hopkirk. And, uh, and, and, for, and, I put, and, so, and the DEA cap has been on his head. That is brilliant. And then it somehow found its way back on, onto, the, onto the coat rack. And the other day, George was going out for a walk, said, oh, can I take this hat? And, no! <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not you know, yeah. and, and then i had to tell him the story i said no there was a girl at the front it was you know it's some stadium and i sensed it out and and, and um, i thought she understood what the exchange was going to be and she clearly didn't because when i could she got a couple of my guy pratt's signature plectrums <laughs> and i got like that and she, she was she was really pissed off <laughs> that's what's gonna happen <laughs> if he's listening i apologize um but you're not getting that hat but, but that hat has been she probably would have lost it given it away that was 1994 True. i still have and cherish that hat so you know it's gone to a i good mean home. i mean it's, it's gone to a good home. <laughs> yeah and it's probably gonna get buried with you as well or you know cremated you know or shot into the sky yeah, Hunter S. Thompson I'm li- style. I'm leaving, I'm leaving my body to science fiction. Yeah, oh, you should do, guy. You should do. You've got a, You've got. You've got the face for it. We could formaldehyde that shit, and it would look great. <laughs> um, can I also yeah, ask yeah. about? Uh, yeah, this is a joke. Um, John Lemessure, because I'm a massive Dad's Army freak. I uh, gr- grew up on it and all that kind of jazz. Um, thanks, Mom. John used to give me, I, you know, I was sent to stay with the LeMessures when my dad died. Um, really weird. Um, my mum's never really been able to give me a suitable explanation. She just couldn't cope and it was all good. And um, they were such good friends. So I was sent to stay with the LeMessures family. And 
And the fantastic thing is, is John was such an amazing character, and it, but he just couldn't cope with any sort of real, like he couldn't change a plug or any, do anything. And he felt obliged that he should be giving me sort of fatherly advice, right? And it was, and he used to sit me down and he's like, oh God, you could tell he was hating it. But he did say some of the funniest and still that there's one piece of advice he gave me, which I still think is, is the greatest piece of advice I've ever, ever been given. <laughs> he said, Guy, is when when you grow up, is be be a mass murderer, be a fascist dictator, be anything. Don't ever, ever be a bore. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good, isn't it? I it's fucking so love that. Yeah, he's absolutely right. I've kind of lived my life by that. Why? Well, oh, so. mate. The way I see Jean Le Mesure is like someone that you just want to be in a, a like a smoking jacket the entire day, chain smoking, and just drinking either the best red wine in the universe or like the greatest whiskey in the universe. You know? Yeah. Well, he was he was a vodka and tonic man. Um, but he, there, actually, you know, funny enough, I did a podcast uh, the other week with a uh, Mike Bat was on it, and I got okay. to tell. And it was really nice, to, and Mike did actually confirm the story because uh, obviously, because uh, John's two, John and Hattie's two boys, uh, which were Jake and Robin, both of whom were great. Jake was like my best mate, uh, and Robin was well, still is very good friend. In uh, fact, we lived together briefly. Um, but Robin was a womble, right? Robin, <laughs> Robin played guitar in the wombles. The wombles. <laughs> The Wombles were actually a fucking kick-ass rock and roll band, right? They had Chris Spedding, right? Oh, <laughs> the measurer. I mean, they, they, was, they were like, you know, a punk band. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, there's fantastic, but, but in their heyday, and they had like a lot of hits, big hits. In their heyday, Robin got busted for weed. Yeah. And, uh, and so he got kicked out immediately, sacked from the Wombles, right? Um, and of course, this was the height of Dad's army. So obviously, the press are all over John the Measurer for a quote. They're like, John, what have you got to say about your son taking drugs? And of course, John came out with the most beautiful, sublime John quote. Where he said, it would appear that my son is too wicked to womble. <laughs> <laughs> now, fuck off. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is so good. Oh my god! I I think like my ultimate would be um, I I'd, I'd love to know Arthur Lowe, an evening with Arthur Lowe and Jean Le oh, Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. No, because John was everything that you think. he's had. Always great. Like he had this great line. Um, because he was always getting approached in the pub, you know, by dreadful people, and, uh, <laughs> and he and he had this great thing. And it, it, one one thing he lived by, he said, "You can never offend a ball." So he spot a true ball. You can never, he said, just what? And he used to try, because people come up to him and go, so John, anyway, blah, blah. and John would go, yes, did, did you ever consider becoming an anaesthetist? And would go, <laughs> you know, it's funny you should say that, because my uncle was a doctor, and I was often said that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my God, I can well imagine it. Oh, it, I can imagine people coming up. Oh, I probably would have been one of those people. I would have, I would have. I mean, <laughs> well, it was I'm a great here. one. He used to have... He used to have a flat in Barons Keep, um, you know, West Brompton, and um, he was once walking across the, at this big, great big courtyard. He was walking across the courtyard, and some guy comes running up to him and goes, John, 
John, it's me, Barry, or you know, whoever, John. Went, oh my God, how long's it been? It must be what, seven years? And John goes, yes, yes, well, I mustn't be keeping you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Do you hear the other great one? The other great one. I'm happy to tell, just tell John stories all night. The other great one is when he got stopped in the street by some religious nutter who went, Excuse me, sir. Do you know Jesus? Have you met the Lord? He goes, well, yeah, Yes, I have actually. I, he said, I, I saw him just the other day. If I, he, he didn't mention you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Okay, you see, when is he? When when was he recanting these stories to you, or did he did you hear them oh, secondhand? Yeah, or? I, think, I mean, there was a lot. When he moved to, um, he he they had to when Hattie died, and there was a thing where they sold the house and I was caught, and he he lived moved to Fulham, uh, to, and uh, and I used to take him to the betting shop in the afternoon. We used to sort of shuffle up the road arm in arm to the betting shop. It was just the nicest thing. I was you know eighteen or something. Wow. Uh, he just used to have all these lovely stories, and he was always being stopped. And and he, you know, he'd. Um, I remember once we were walking, and it says anything to put people out. We were walking down the street, and there were these new. Oh, look, everyone! It's our new neighbour. It's John the Major. It's our new neighbour. John, we're having a party. Come and have a drink. John was like, "Oh my god, I'm drunk." And so, we're, no, come in, John. So, so we couldn't get out of it. And he said, "Can I just get me out in five minutes?" So we sort of walked down into this place. Go, John. What do you want? We got everything: whiskey. Vodka, wine, beer, what do you fancy? He says, do you have any cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> Which he didn't do. He didn't do it, I'm just saying. He was just trying to... Yeah, think. No, of course. He also this thing of just trying to think of the most inappropriate thing. Right, yeah. Any prostitutes? But yeah, yeah, oh God, we could definitely talk about Le Mesure all night. <laughs> I'm just thinking... Um, just one last thing on this dude, and then we're, and then we're done. But he and this, I didn't mean to speak about him for this length at all. But I heard that, what, what, he he lived with um didn't his his then he his Hattie Jake Hattie had, had this other guy yeah yeah mm. had another guy living and John was yeah. quite happy with it. Well, he wasn't. I don't think he was happy with it. He was just. He he was. I think it was just sort of anything for quiet life. You know, he just couldn't be. Yeah. Really couldn't be bothered. <laughs> yeah, that's too short. Do the fuck it. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. just, you know, whatever. Just get me another vodka or whatever. Um, so all the the other thing in the audiobooks, I know you were pissed. Now this is interesting. Yeah. Because you because you, I grew up in Chiddingfold, right? Where you. Oh, the Chiddingfold rehe- Servicemen's Club. Yeah, and I think you say Chiddingford or something, and I okay. and and I was, was like, it the same this- place? sorry. Is it the same place in Surrey? Is, yeah, in Surrey. Yeah, and I was like, "This is in the this heart is... of what I call the heart of the rock broker belt." Right, exactly, mate. Oh my god, like Roger Taylor's, like literally his. All of Genesis, you can... miles down the road. Yeah, it's yeah. You will know us by our trail of money. You know, it's like it's un, it's unbelievable. Um, so were you you were rehearsing in Chid Club, were you? Yes. Well, a lot of people. Yeah. Apparently, I mean, Genesis rehearsed there. Phil Collins rehearsed there. Mike yep. and Mechanics rehearsed there. Yeah, I, I um I I want I went in on a Mike and Mechanics rehearsal when I was about twelve or thirteen. I heard they were in the village. Went down with my mate, and it was was it Paul Young, this the front guy. Yes, I've got. And he was. A, oh well, do because he's fucking adorable, and he he came I and agree. spoke to us for like ten fifteen minutes because he knew we were like, oh my god, Mike and Mechanics looking back over my shoulder. 
and he was adorable fucking adorable and he said don't pick music it's a terrible industry but what's your what's your story about Paul well, I, well, well, I don't know if I should say it, but it, it's uh, I, I mean it's the, 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 it was the last night a bit of Mike and Mechanics rehearsal um, and he just fancied having a drink and getting on one and of course chilling for there wasn't really much happening and, uh, and he didn't have a car and I was going to give him a lift and there was no train so apparently <laughs> they, they just loaded the truck up <laughs> with all the gear yeah. and he just drove it up to Soho fuck hey <laughs> dog <laughs> Fucking hell, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the way up. <laughs> man, you can... You can um, so, no, that's pretty cool, man, because, like... Whistling, uh, the, whistling is the toughest one. I've always... Uh, I've only ever known two people whistle like... There's nothing, actually, that kind of makes me nervous on stage than when someone's got a whistle. Um, to, um, Brian Ferry... On jealous guy, we obviously, you know, every night when that whistle's coming up, you're just like, come on, Brian, come on, come on, and it all course always got it. And actually, David Gilmore used to whistle at the start of uh, in any tongue of his last album, and that was the same. Yeah. Although with, with David, you don't. Know, I mean, actually, you, you never get nervous about David doing anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. I was going to say, like, you know, yeah, yeah. He's got. Like, he, he's channeling something else anyway, so you know he'll be fine, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, the other guy that I've, I was actually quite interested in you talking about in your book was uh, Robert Palmer. So I love, I love his voice. I love, his, loved his voice. Oh, loved his music. Amazing man. I mean, I mean, such a unique individual. He was just absolutely. It, it was. He was one of those. There are people, people who who kind of who completely live their own life, or whatever, but do it by being arrogant and you know and cocked up. Whereas he completely didn't, and he just completely lived on his own terms and i mean just things like he, he never made it easy he tried to move to jamaica and that just didn't work so then he moved to the middle of nowhere in the bahamas but he never learned to drive he couldn't yeah. even drive he never lived up a mountain so he couldn't drive you know yeah um, yeah because <laughs> um, when did you, when did you first meet him because it's quite sweet because when you do actually first meet him you're like fucking hell it's robert palmer it was a big yeah. deal to you it was a huge deal. I was a massive fan, massive fan of Robert Palmer. And also, um, he'd, also he'd just put out an album, which I was absolutely besotted with, which was Pride, which was, yeah. which was amazing because it was a completely electro album, right? It was all, everything on it was, uh, was incredible, like electronic drums and all his own. But what was amazing, it was, this is classic Robert, the most electro-sounding record you've ever, because he'd been hanging out with Gary Newman, the most electro-sounding record you've ever heard. But every note is played. Every single note is played by a human being. There's not one right. bit of sequencing, not one bit of drum machine. It's all played. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And um, yeah, and yeah, he just put that album out, and it was uh, I was I was with Ice House, and it was you know I'd only been in Ice House for six months at this point. We'd done this three month Australian New Zealand tour, and we had Christmas off, and and then we were doing. Then we got asked to support. Then Hey Little Girl was a hit, and then we'd done Top of the Pops, you know, and and we got asked to support Bowie on the Serious Moonlight tour. But to make that work, because that was only about five shows, to make that work, because the band was flown from Australia, we did this travelling German festival, and Robert Palmer was on the bill. And um, and he just came and checked me out one afternoon. He just came and watched. I, I remember I, I turned and, and, you know, I just had to look at the side of the stage, and there was Robert Palmer with Donnie Wynn, his drummer. And they were checking me out. I was like, fuck. And then that night... Uh, that night, at the, and that was the day that Bowie came to see us. 
Bowie came, and that's where I got my famous picture of me with Bowie, and um, in catering. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but that night, we're all everyone staying in the same hotel. I remember the Steigenberger Hotel, and uh, and Bowie came in to have dinner with Robert, and um, and and I was like, oh my god, he's doing it, and. Uh, and I think we all got introduced to Bowie again. It was just like being at the Royal Variety performance. Right, like yeah. Robert, you know, they went along the line. And, and then Robert came into her boat. And, then I, and we were all just sitting having a drink in the foyer. And suddenly this head comes through the potty palms. Right, through the palms. And it's Rob Palmer. just goes, you, you're the guy with the stick. you got something going on. And we need to talk. And then he sort of disappeared back through the palms. I was like, <laughs> what? And he then went off. And had dinner uh, with Bowie, and and I I've managed to position myself so that it looked like so whilst pretending to chat up the girl from the record company, but I, I say pretend I probably was trying to chat up the girl from the record company. <laughs> uh, and but I positioned myself so that I could see them, and I basically was, I spent the whole, all of their dinner trying to lit me. I was thinking, what did David Bowie and Robert Palmer talk about? What do they talk about? Uh, what what, what the like but we Swiss forget, but, yeah, 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 yeah. Or like you know, nineteen sixties, like I don't know, threads, fucking whatever. I mean, yeah. I mean, he was in all that sort of. Bo was in that whole kind of like before he was mega famous. He was like a, like a show, essentially a show showboy, wasn't it? showboy showman, like a real uh, vaudeville almost kind of kind of yeah, thing. Kind but, of, yeah, well, no, he tried. You know, he he. So I, I, I mean, he'd be that sort of the, the, the standard R&B singer that everyone was in 1964. Wasn't it? Yeah. God, it's so it it is it's it's hard to keep up. Uh, your your book is relentless, absolutely relentless in a brilliant way. Like it's it's almost. Well, that's only because that that's only because I mean the funny thing is, is that's only because obviously that's how it's edited. I mean, I've just written. It's not really an autobiography. It's just the funny bits with famous people. It's what what yeah. we don't realise is actually. I mean, that's why for someone like me, lockdown didn't really pose a challenge because I've actually spent half my life sitting on the sofa doing nothing. You know, mm. I, I really have. It's it's out. I mean, I yeah. have years between sort of doing tours and stuff. And I mean, I'm always pottering about doing this and that, but I. But it's really not as because that whole thing of having an amazing CV, which you know, yes, my CV does look very impressive. But it's you've got to bear in mind it, it, it's half these things. He's worked with Iggy Pop and Debbie Harry. It's like, well, yeah, well, well now I have. I mean, in, I did end up producing, and when that originally went in my CV, I played bass on one song on the Red Hot and Blue compilation, which I did, which took a couple of hours round at Steve Lilly White's house, and I, none, neither of them were there. But you know right. that suddenly adds a whole layer to your CV, and a lot of things are that. It's just like you know, you go and play on a song, and suddenly you've got this other name on your list, and it's not. It's I love how like honest you're about before. that. I've got yeah. to say, like hand on heart, that is a very refreshing thing to hear. You know, I think there are people out there that would go, "Hey man, you know, I mean, I," and just bullshit people and go that you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, session work or what have you, it, it can be very impersonal. It can be like a little bit not soul destroying, but I've experienced that in terms of just speaking with people or podcasting and, yeah. and you, you've got an idea in your head of what they're going to be like. Then you speak with them and you realize they're, they're, they're doing a job, man. And, and you're not going to get any emotional connection. You leave the interview and you're like, shit, that was, that was brutal. I didn't, oh, I wanted a connection, you know, but then, but you get that with fucking Michael fucking Jackson, like hiding behind a mixing desk. Like what the fuck is going on there? 
that's just the creepiest weirdest shit it is crazy and the, and the, the, the funny thing is is because a lot of those stories it, it's it doesn't just doesn't occur to you at the time do you know what I mean? Just, just, just moving through stuff. And I did the session, and and, then, and it's usually it's actually when someone points it out to you, you go, yeah, oh no, Michael wasn't there; he was hiding. And someone goes, "What? Yeah, that's the weirdest shit I've ever heard of." You go, "Oh yeah, yeah, he is there. Yeah, Mountains are like, I'm playing Michael Jackson." And also, you've got to bear in mind, half time. I was always in, incredibly insecure on that because I tend to be very fast. <laughs> right? It's um, it's that I, I tend to be in and out sessions very quickly. And I was yeah. always very insecure, and, and literally, I'd, I'd like to have a few guys at a song come up with a line. So there it is. And they go, "Yeah, there it is. That's great. You're done. Really? You sure? Yeah, yeah. No, you're done. <laughs> really? Yeah." And I'd be convinced that what that meant was that I was just going to pack my bass up, and the second I walked out the door, they're going, "Hello, Pino. Can you get down here?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's you know, which was so. So half the time, I was assuming I'm just not on the record anyway. So compliment. What a compliment, though, mate. To like literally two. <laughs> Like just to be able to do, what like two or three takes and go yeah that's perfect fuck off it's like yeah. Jesus no no but I always assume it can't crazy. be I can't be surely because I you know, I never think it's that good really or if it is in the case of something like like a prayer I don't fucking remember you know right. yeah oh, so that was a great one when I sat when Madonna invited me to the mix and sat down next to her and then I went my God Madonna that is the best record you've ever made that bass is insane who did it you dummy. <laughs> <laughs> your impression of madonna by the way on the audiobook is fucking hysterical it's very very oh. funny but just to give people um an idea of what the hell i'm talking about mj hiding behind a mixing desk is when you were doing the earth song right and yes and it was just a weird vibe in the room or something well no i've been i've been in two or three times to do the session and, and it gets in Michael like this and like that and and, and eventually i just have to build juice look you know michael could just be here tell me what he wants i'll do it we all go on and uh, and then he called me and said, Guy, get down the studio, Michael's here. I, I rushed down there and went, sorry, Michael's just there. But there was this big weird thing. Of, there was this new engineer who I say in inverted commas because it was this giant Samoan bloke who'd be sort of better suited to being, oh, I don't know, a bodyguard or something. And he was down <laughs> one end of the mixing desk and he wouldn't let me get down there. Um, and uh, and every time I played something, this guy would just sort of lean over and he'd come up and go, yeah, I think Michael would find that appropriate. <laughs> so it's like this guy just might have an incredibly tenuous grasp of uh, the English language and absolutely intrinsic understanding of what Michael Jackson required from a bass performance, uh, which seemed rather odd. And of course, it's because Michael Jackson was actually hiding behind the mixing desk. I, 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 it's extraordinary to me. I think in some ways, you the the way it. I suppose maybe it's in the way it's written, but the way it, it finishes the, the book, it's almost like you. I, I personally think maybe if you'd got too involved with some of these people, you wouldn't be here right now. I think you kind of like escaped the eye of the storm with some of them, some of these people. I know that, I mean, because like some of those people are, are bonkers, proper. I mean, what you certainly got up to is pretty bonkers at times. But like, yeah. for, for example, you know, getting in a car with that girl at a party and going, hey, let's just go off for a weekend. Oh, yeah, and, no, that was mad. Yeah. Um, and that was, but the funny thing is, that was just sort of going somewhere nice for a weekend because I never used to do anything like that. I had no concept of holidays or anything like that, which is now looking back, it's really, really nuts. I mean, I, I never used to go on holiday or anything. And uh, I didn't understand why people went on holiday because I thought people went on holiday because they had a job they didn't like and they wanted to be away from it. Whereas I love my holiday, I love my job, and my job in, involves traveling the world and staying in five star hotels. So why would I then go and pay to stay in a five star hotel? 
It's like, so you fucking rest, you idiot. That's why <laughs> you do it. Oh, I love. I mean, I've, I've certainly been making up for it the last twenty years. Right, and you, but you, you get in the car and you, you're, you're speed, you're speeding up, you're driving with this yeah, girl. Yeah, and yeah, and I sort of woke up at like about six in the morning with red lights, um, and yeah, get pulled over in the middle of nowhere, um, and they let us go just because it would have spoiled their whole. I mean, there was, you know, there was something in my wallet, and there was something, but, and it all just went away because it, it was these guys were it, it would obviously just ruin their day. Because they'd have, you know, because what you forget with the American police is just tons of really, as, as well as the brutality, there's also just tons of really boring paperwork. And they're thinking, we're going to have to go 20 miles back to the station. I can yeah. write these guys up with it. Whereas we could be out here on our Harleys. <laughs> Cruising. <laughs> Let it go. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, man, I love it. Yeah. I mean, is there a part of it that when you are. I mean, now, how old are you now? Like 56 or something, 58. I, I mean, part of me, because you're still like, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but you're not old yet. You're not like anywhere near old yet. It's like, what chapter do you feel like you're on now? Because it feels like... I don't, no, I mean, because I, I, I keep trying to go and do... I mean, I, um, I, I, I sort of keep thinking, I, I, I tried, you know, I did comedy for a few years. I was doing, I was doing music for TV and stuff for a few years. Yeah. And I seem to keep getting, yeah, I, I seem to keep getting drawn back to Facebook. And now I've got this, you know, now I'm in this band, which is possibly the best fun band thing I've ever done, uh, with my best mate, with Gary Kemp, and we're both fronting it. And the, what's, but the good thing about this is, a, I mean, finding out I can sing. I've always loved doing BVs. Um, but then finding out I can actually say, I'm a, you know, luckily I've stopped smoking and I'm sure we're not drinking helps, but it's, um, <clears throat> finding that I can sing well enough to do this, but, and I really enjoy it. But the good thing is what hasn't happened. And so I thought, wouldn't it be awful if you suddenly go, oh no, I should have been a singer. <laughs> I love to sing. That's what I should have And it's, you know, that clearly isn't the case, but what's really nice is that, is that I get to tick a box that I didn't actually feel needed ticking so it sounds like another box has turned up and that's really really nice i mean th that's the annoying thing this band is like the most fun thing ever because uh, on so many levels it's so nice for nick to do something and the fact that it's it's the sort of rehumanizing of pink floyd it's pink floyd at, when it was a pop group before it became the vast faceless obelisk you know where everything's so important so weighty and suddenly yeah. it's you know, like we're all allowed to chat. We can tell jokes. You can muck about. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be sort of too reverential with the material. And it's and it's really nice because and you can see what it does for and it does it to everyone in the band. I'd say because I look at Nick now, you know, back there on stage, and I see that kid on stage at the UFO club, and that suddenly yeah. reconnects me with seventeen-year-old me on stage at the Marquee with my mod band. And I see Gary at Blitz and, you know, and it's so it's a beautiful, rejuvenating experience for everyone. God, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important, isn't it? And it's, and it's kind of like who you are as well. I think you are just like such a fun time guy, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, that's the, it's nice to be able to do that to actually, I mean, having now had sort of, you know, years of, of stand up experience and it's so, so I'm confident in that. So it's quite nice to be able to bring um, to bring that because uh, be, you know, because I've got two distinct personas as a, you know, there's this bloke who's always chatty and whatever. But yeah. I, as a bass player, I'm very happy to not be that guy. 
very, very happy there. It's all about serving someone else's, serving a bigger picture. And I really, really like that. But I also, I, there's, a, there's a syndrome I call sideband bitterness, which is I've seen in a lot of musicians, you know, have done very well, who get to about 50 and they're suddenly like, yeah, but where's, where's my share? Where's, <laughs> where's Leo Bloom's share? And it, it's kind yeah. of, um, that's why the great thing about going off and doing the comedy and everything is that took care of all of that. It's like I've only played to sort of little ride, been playing to two, three hundred people, but they were mine. They yeah, were yeah, me. no, absolutely. They all lived and, and died on me, so I've done but that. Stand up is it's brutal. It's like it's 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 the most brutal, and and when you get it right, it's the biggest buzz. Imagine it's the biggest buzz there is because well, you don't. I mean, that's you know, a because you don't know what's going to happen, and it's and the thing is, with being a sideman, it's it's like you know, I've had years of you get on stage with David Gilmore and you play Wish You Were Here, unless something catastrophic happens you've got a pretty good job of a pretty good idea of how it's going to go down so you get on stage with brian ferry you play love is the drug you've got a pretty good idea of how it's going to go down it's all a dumb deal right. you know whereas the one thing i loved about the stand-up is it completely wasn't the funniest thing i found about doing stand-up was that um after years of being a musician of having everyone you ever come across says to you, oh, you're so lucky to do something you love. Oh, do something you love. Must be great to do something you love. You're so lucky to do something you love. Oh, you do something you love. He said, what are you doing? Do you stand up. You're so brave! <laughs> you're so brave! It's like, well, well, okay, maybe in a way, but it's still the same self-serving, needy, look at me, insecure thing. It's like I haven't become a fireman, you yeah. know, running into buildings to save fucking children. That's brave. Yeah, but I don't know. It's funny because I know, I know what you're saying, man. I did a bit for I did stand up for about six months, and I had some people saying that to me. And like, I I get what you're saying about yeah, fireman's brave, but there's a different kind of bravery. There's a different. It's putting yourself out there in a way that part of you knows you have to do it, and 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 you you live and die by that sword. And it's a oh yeah, that, and it is it is terrifying. I mean, I was always terrified, but that's the other thing is that. Uh, like uh i haven't done it since i quit drinking and i and it's so pavlovian that i'm just going to completely because i'm sure obviously i can do it after because i'm doing this without drinking i mean it's the same thing but um yeah. it became such a thing where well i don't I, I never needed to drink to play music but i had to have a glass of wine to get on stage or two to do comedy and then i'd drink a bottle of wine through the show and then the problem the other problem is of course then you're telling all these stories about this guy who just gets wrecked and everything and then everyone wants to have a drink with the guy who just talked about getting wrecked and everything. so the whole thing just feeds into itself and um yeah so I, if i'm going to do it again i need to find a new way of looking at it yeah, right. i just how, don't know if how, i want to do it again i can't feel i've proved my point with that how so, long have you been sober now uh it's it's you know, more my journey has been it's been a couple of years Oh wow, well, great! Well, you great. know, I had the old slip, but it's um, no, but I like it. But it's also it's you know when you drank as much as I did, it, it's just really nice to have a different view of things. Also, just to anyone, it's hangovers just get so bad when you get old. It's so bad. It's not when you're literally ill. I mean, it's horrible being yeah. ill. We don't hate being ill. We're worried about getting COVID or having flu. It's horrible to be ill. And when you get drunk, you know you're going to be ill. Why do that? What is worth that? <laughs> I know, or oh, I, I just don't even get a buzz out of drinking anymore, which is really bad, awful thing. I just, I love the taste, I drink, but I, I just don't get a buzz anymore. It's so, it's not because, I, I mean, I definitely overdid it, but I don't, yeah. there's just not that when you're 20, 25, maybe 30. It's great, and everything was funny. That's the thing, all the crap things you do are funny. You know, when you're old, it's not funny. There's nothing yeah. funny about it. 
yeah, exactly exactly um my wife's just got home gary gary guy even i think it was gary newman then um you're far too smiley for gary um but yeah um she's she's got home so i get to talk about um christmas jesus jesus coming into my jesus, life yes jesus, but that's well maybe well if he's due on on seeing as i was due on christmas day then he might well be born on january the third when i was born yeah oh my god that would be what well, if if he whatever happens your child is going to have the dreadful i can tell you a resentment they will carry their whole life uh and it's going to be your fault and that is going to be the joint christmas and birthday present which is going to be a greater pecuniary value than a than a, a christmas or birthday but not never worth quite as much as if they two <laughs> things put together and it's, my, it's my... My niece has that. My niece, my niece is a tw- the twenty eighth, I think, and it's just. Uh... Yeah, no, mine's the worst because it's you've had Christmas, then you've had New Year. So no, I mean everyone's had, and when you're young, everyone's skinned by then. Yeah, yeah. And no one gives a fuck. <laughs> guy wants to go out and party surprise surprise um no thanks free i've got no fucking money left um can we do it next year um anyway um we should do this again sometime because I've, um i'd like to talk a little bit more about your stand-up um because okay. that that really fascinates me as well because i know you did so well in that you got such high praise um and and what have you and also yeah, it was my living for years it was great i went around the world with it I mean, you know australia yeah. remarkable australia like three or four times with it fucking mental <laughs> you've done so much it's bonkers yeah, but i've also Probably. spent so much time not doing anything but, yeah uh, i mean it's a funny thing it was, it's I mean, i'm not complaining but... no 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 i know <laughs> i know i know i know how it is i know how it is but um yeah let's hook up and um Oh, I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll put this one up and then we can maybe do a, a part two at some point. That'd be yeah, great. Yeah, we're happy to. Yeah, very happy yeah. to. Yeah. Well, I'd like I'd like to talk about some of your other the other people you've had on. So, but a lot of people I know, yeah. including an old I'd... schoolmate of mine. Who's fact. that? Who's uh, that? You might be surprised, Lord Adonis. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> we're in school He's together. Fun. He was. He turned up. He was. I took him up. I I went to his hat. His uh, his childhood home in Camden Town and everything. Really? Oh my God! He's. Yeah. He was such a lovely guy. He was like one of the first um, politicians I ever interviewed that actually had listened to the podcast and gave a shit about who I was. It was he was such a lovely man, really lovely guy. But yeah, anyway, let's let's chat on. And I'm I can see now it's not a sea view. It is actually scaffolding. Yes, it is scaffolding. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've got, got my Nazi bookshelf. For you do have a Nazi bookshelf. <laughs> I can see there's a red flag with a white symbol in the middle of it. Um, with a, is it, I think, is that a swastika? No, I'm joking, guy. I'm joking. I'm winding you up. <laughs> there's, a, there's a solidarity sign here. This is from this. This is when uh, the David Gilmore band, when we played Gdansk Shipyard, the 26th oh anniversary God. of the uprising. Jesus Christ. That is yeah. amazing. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, my God. Okay, right. Let's 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 call it. But I'm dead weird. We've got so much more to talk about. This is ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm up for it. Okay. Thanks, guy. But well, have All a right. have a great evening. Thank you and you. Good luck. Thanks so Bye. thanks so much, mate. <laughs> All right. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.